Hello and welcome. You're listening to a very special edition of Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. I'm Joshua. And I'm Grayson. Today is December 6th, 2017, the 100th anniversary of the Halifax explosion. On this episode, we explore the worst disaster in Canadian history from an emergency management perspective. What happened? How did the response at the time differ from what is now considered best practice? And finally, we explore what the emergency management community can learn from this landmark event over the last hundred years. To this end, we are very excited to present interviews from... Barry Manuel. I'm the current emergency management coordinator for the uh, Halifax Region Municipality. Hi, I'm uh, Dan Padella, communications director in the Atlantic provinces for the Canadian Red Cross. Hello, my name is Dale Bodnerchuk, explosives expert. Okay, hello there, folks. Uh, uh, My name is David Sutherland. I'm a retired history professor retired from the Department of History at Dalhousie University, so I don't know everything, but I do know a bit. And all of this set to the music of Natalie McMaster from her album Cape Breton Girl. All this and more on this very special commemorative episode of Epic Podcast. Current, relevant, hmm, well, actually, uh, this time, historical, still relevant, and still very much Canadian. A hundred years ago today, one of the worst disasters in Canadian history took place. Its impact was felt throughout the world and contributed to numerous social, political, and even technological changes. But what what is often left out is its impact on modern-day disaster and emergency management. To help tell this story, and to help set the scene, we're very lucky to have David Sutherland, a renowned historian on the Halifax Explosion. Okay, why did the uh, disaster happen? Well, it was a byproduct of war. In earlier, earlier in 1917, they had introduced convoy system. This is a reactivation of a program that went back to the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, groups of ships sailing together with escorts. And it was necessary to reduce, it. they thought it would reduce the uh, number of sinkings by German submarines, particularly in the waters around Britain. So Halifax became the main East Coast Canadian port for convoy assembly in the inner harbor, what's called Bedford Basin. So in December of 1917, a French registered vessel, the Mont Blanc, sailing out of New York City, brought a cargo of modern high explosives. Now these are things like uh, TNT and benzoyl and, and, and gun cotton. Uh, these are the ingredients used to make artillery shells. Artillery shells and machine guns are the the main killing weapons by 1917 on the Western Front. So it's loaded to the gunnels. They have a deck cargo with barrels of highly volatile weaponry. The vessel sails into Halifax to join a convoy, eventually gets through the submarine net barrier, and is going from the main harbor to the inner harbor through what's called the Narrows, a, a, a narrow body of water. And there's a navigation error. On the courts ultimately decide both vessels in the collision are at fault. Um, the incoming vessel is hit by an outgoing vessel. Both of them are modern metal-hulled craft. Uh, the damage is relatively minimal, but when the, the one vessel pulls away from the other, sparks from metal grinding on metal, set alight some of the explosives. The barrels on the deck have spilled, a fire develops and builds in intensity for about 20 minutes. 
the crew, the French crew on board the Mont Blanc, the carrying vessel carrying the munitions, they know what's going on. But most people in Halifax don't know what the cargo is. So you've got a lot of people watching the fire. You've got a lot of people scrambling to try to put the fire out. And then whammo, after about 9.04, 9.05, 20 minutes after the fire, the um, vessel explodes. What happened next was the largest non-nuclear explosion ever. So the Halifax explosion was not just any ordinary explosion. That's Dale Bodnerchuk, our explosive expert. First of all, explosives can be divided into two main groups, high and low explosives. Essentially, the difference here is that it's the rate of reaction and the amount of pressure that's being developed that distinguishes the two. So essentially, a low explosive either burns or, or the technical term is that it deflagrates slower than the speed of sound. High explosives, on the other hand, detonates at extremely high speeds of between 2,000 to eight, up to 8,000 meters per second. So if the quality and the quantity is small enough, the, the high explosive may just burn. However, it is possible that if uh, the burning intensifies sufficiently and uh, is put under confinement, then there is the development of a shock wave that occurs and it actually propagates through the material and thus we call it a detonation. So in the case of Halifax, they were carrying TNT. Now you have this huge pile of, of high explosives. And when the material starts to burn, it actually heats up internally and gets hot enough uh, to sufficiently get it to a point of detonation. So at that point, the TNT detonated after it had been heated up and in a confined area and actually created a, a massive shock wave from the uh, explosion. And that detonation piece is is really key to understanding the event. And you know, the more I think about it, I, I begin to think that maybe naming the event the Halifax Explosion isn't just, you know, technically lacking in specificity. It, it also doesn't do justice to the incredible array of hazards and vulnerabilities that were faced uh, this day and, and combined to form this just infinitely complex disaster. Uh, I mean, so yes, first off, you have the detonation. Uh, shockwaves ripped through the ground and the air and were felt as far away as Cape Breton, over 200 kilometers away. Uh, the forward cannon of the Mont Blanc famously was blown over five and a half kilometers from the site uh, and remains as a memorial, and about 400 acres were destroyed instantly. Um, the shockwave shattered almost every window in the city, and 1,600 people lost their lives in the first half second. But Josh, that was just the beginning. Uh, the explosion generated a tsunami, which was apparently 18 meters above the high water line. And some reports say that the bottom of the harbor was momentarily exposed. Uh, fires erupted, buildings collapsed, and, and hazardous materials literally rained from the sky. And on top of that, they had to deal with the almost complete disruption of critical infrastructure. The underwater telegraph lines that they relied on for communication were, were broken, uh, roads were blocked, ports were destroyed, and one of the major hospitals just ceased to exist. And there's more. <laughs> that very evening, the worst blizzard in 10 years blasted through the city, hindering rescue efforts, killing victims who were still trapped, and seriously delaying one of the rescue trains bringing in vital supplies. And all of this, all of this during World War I, uh, so people were convinced that this was just the first wave of a German attack, and uh, many of the soldiers were drawn away from the response to man the anti-aircraft batteries. 
Yeah, Grayson, it's amazing. I mean, what stood out to me is just the the sheer complexity of this this disaster. And if you look at it, you know, using a disaster theory lens, it's really typical. It's a textbook example of these types of cascading failures that we see and exposure of new vulnerabilities, things that uh, during non-disaster situations aren't a problem. Uh, for example, most of the homes in Halifax are, are wood construction and people use coal stoves to heat their homes. Well, the blast wave tipped over uh, the majority of stoves and lit everyone's house on fire. These house fires turned into street fires, which turned into block fires and eventually turned into a city fire. And of course, the majority of the fire department had been incapacitated with the initial detonation. Um, in fact, the only mechanized fire truck that the city owned, known as the Patricia, uh, the pride of the department, uh, was destroyed right at the beginning. Most of the homes also had plate glass windows, and this is really important to understand the unique injury profile that the the uh, explosion created. The detonation made a blast wave, and this and this blast wave broke the majority of the plate glass windows, and people had these terrible eye injuries and uh, lacerations and and trauma from the plate glass exploding in their face. Um, the number of people that were uh, made blind and and deaf was staggering. And as you mentioned, the snowstorm. I mean, Halifax is very accustomed to dealing with snow and, and, and snowstorms as part of living in the Maritimes. Uh, but when you think of a city that's got no power, uh, no infrastructure, and the number of people made homeless, uh, this just wasn't an ordinary snowstorm. It had a profound impact on the response. So I'm, I'm struggling to even imagine this, like trying to put myself in that position. Let's say I'm coming in on, on a relief train what do I see? Well, uh, you know, I read through a lot of the um, handwritten uh, accounts of some of the first people to enter the disaster scene. And if you as looking from the harbor, it would have been a complete carnage. Uh, the blast wave had flattened all of the structures. So, so the majority of the north side of Halifax was gone. Uh, you would have seen some 1600 buildings destroyed. And almost 12,000 that uh, had significant structural damage. There was, as you mentioned, 1,600 people that were killed instantly, over 9,000 who were wounded, and some 6,000 uh, made homeless, and another 25,000 who had insufficient shelter. So just staggering numbers, especially when you think of a, uh, a community that had limited um, response infrastructure to begin with. And what's really the, telling is is they didn't call it Ground Zero, or they didn't have a you know the disaster site. They just called it the devastated area. That's right. You know, the imagination of human-made explosives didn't exist uh, to that degree yet that uh, the term ground zero even existed. So it, it, just, it just speaks to the kind of collective shock of, of what happened. Um, it's interesting to, to note uh, some of the other handwritten accounts there, this hazardous materials, the black rain, as it was called, that, that kind of covered the city, just blanketed everything. So this thick, acrid, um, black dust just covering everything. So would have been a very, very dramatic scene for, for people arriving. So you're on scene. You're a first responder or a disaster manager. What do you do? So I think the key to answering that question is discovering what sort of capacity uh, Halifax had to respond to something like this. So I, I asked historian David Sutherland how prepared Halifax was for this disaster. Utterly unprepared. In contrast to the United States, where the Committee of, on Public Safety 
in, say, a state like Massachusetts is planning for civilian mobilization, mainly for the war effort, but for any emergency that might arise. Halifax, I suppose you could say, they're naive. They have no machinery whatsoever to deal with the catastrophe. Even a maker only could put out a fire. But this kind of devastation is simply unimagined by anyone prior to the blast going off. So there's no machinery to mobilize. There's no one who can immediately assume authority to coordinate and direct to manage uh, disaster relief. It's a scramble. Well, I mean, keep in mind, 100 years ago, they didn't have uh, what we have now. And that's Barry Manuel. He's the current emergency management coordinator for the Halifax Regional Municipality. The civil defense, as we know it today, came out of the, the Second World War. Uh, in, the, in the late f- uh, 50s uh, as civil defense, and then eventually it, it transferred over to what we call emergency measures in Nova Scotia was back then, and eventually emergency management. So back then they didn't they didn't even have that. Uh, the Canadian Red Cross was just, was just coming on, even the Salvation Army. Uh, ICS, as we know it, uh, that didn't exist back then. None of those, those organizations uh, are what they are today. Uh, one of the advantages of the, the Halifax had, though, of course, it was a military town. Uh, this was during a world war. So the military presence was quite active, so that they had that to draw on, and they were able to, you know, to uh, to press uh, soldiers in, into play right away, which was, but you know, turned out to be an advantage as well. So it, Halifax had that going for it. So it sounds to me like maybe they had the resources, but not the skill and not the knowledge and not the preparedness. Uh, was there anything they were prepared for? Well, you know, it's quite impressive uh, what did go well. Um, there was a lot of successes. And, and one of the things that really stood out to me was the way uh, bodies were handled and the d- disaster mortuary uh, response was incredibly impressive. So uh, we can credit a, a gentleman by the name of Arthur Barnstead, who was the head of the mortuary committee. And he used the same system his father had used when responding to the Titanic disaster and had a very elaborate system of categorizing uh, bodies and, and organizing um, the deceased. Are you telling me that the guy who handled the bodies in the Halifax disaster was the son of the guy who responded to the Titanic disaster? Yeah, in a cruel twist of fate, that's uh, that's actually what happened. So his father was John Henry Barnstead, and in 1912, he had to develop the first ever uh, mass casualty, um, you know, mortuary system, and developed a, a process of having body bags with numbers and identifying. Um, you know, personal effects that were found on each body, where they were found, making a central registry so their family members could could come and try and claim their remains. So, you know, from his father's uh, pioneering work, uh, Arthur Barnstead continued the uh, tradition, and uh, this uh, process uh, was quite well uh, documented, and it went on for um, up to to several years after the uh, explosion uh, as, you know, more uh, remains were found. Wow, that's amazing. And, and you know, that's that's interesting. You said that, that a lot of the things did go well. And there's a ton of stories of heroism that came out of the response from people uh, rescuing their neighbors and suddenly becoming basically urban search and rescue specialists uh, to this very well cited story of Vincent Coleman, the, the telegraph operator who was just meters away from this flaming ship uh, with the explosion about to go off. He was at his post and he did not leave his post. Instead, he sent a message to the trains that were inbound to Halifax Hold up the train, munition ship on fire, making for Pier 6. Goodbye, boys. 
pretty impactful, I think. So lots of heroism, certainly in the uh, initial minutes of the response. How did the rest of the response go? Well, this is fascinating because it's this time of war where military structures are everywhere. It's a tightly controlled harbor city, uh, and we're still the Dominion of Canada, don't forget. So you'd think that some sort of military command and control structure would emerge, but instead, the Haligonians address their relief needs by committee. The federal government, the prime minister is here within a day. He's campaigning for re-election. Um, but who is, is he responsible? Is the federal government responsible? Is the province? Uh, initially, the feds agree to ante up several million dollars in relief money. The province initially refuses to pay a cent. They say it's not our responsibility. Now, eventually they would ante up 100000 which is a drop in the bucket. Uh, so really it fell to the municipal authorities, City Hall. But there's a problem. Uh, the mayor is running for election. He's out of the city. The deputy mayor convenes a meeting of city council, or he tries to, and he can't muster a quorum. So the council chamber in City Hall is filled not with municipal politicians, but city notables, heavy hitters in terms of business, the professions, people who are accustomed to exercising authority, and they basically carry out a coup. They say, we are going to run the relief effort, and they form what's called well, the formal, they have a couple of names, and one of them is very confusing. They call themselves the Halifax Relief Committee, but that's so akin to what comes later as the commission that I call them a name they use occasionally, that is the Citizens Relief Committee. And there's a central organizing body headed by a former mayor. Nominally, the lieutenant governor is in charge, but in practice, a man named McElrath Robert McElrath, the ex-mayor, who's been experienced with things like the catastrophe when the, the, the Titanic sank. Um, there's a central coordinating committee and then several subcommittees that deal with distribution of food and clothing, fuel. They range all the way down to uh, running the morgue and taking care of animals that have been abandoned by their owners. The problem with this authority is it it's not very efficient. They are amateurs. They have experience with, with making decisions, but it's a, a somewhat chaotic organization where coordination is difficult to achieve. Committees act on their own. Um, and by the end of December, they realize, well, they're suffering burnout. Uh, and there's a lot of complaint growing. People are angry about the chaos at the depots to get food and clothing. Um, there's a sense that the citizens committee simply can't cope. And they're beginning to realize that the enormity of the problem, this is something they can't fix in a week or a month. It will take years in order to rehabilitate and reconstruct the city. So by late December, they're leading a campaign to have the federal government intervene and set up some kind of authority and provide money, far more money than Ottawa had initially provided. And, and then the interesting story is 
why does the federal government agree to do this? Why do they agree to intervene and set up what's called the Halifax Relief Commission? So why would this even be a question? I mean, you would assume, of course, the government's going to be involved in a response like this. Yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, as Barry was saying, this is pre-civil defense era. As a matter of fact, the, the government really has no responsibility or no established responsibility at all. Uh, their job is to protect the nation's interest from foreign invaders. And that's, that's pretty much it. So how would that conversation start, uh, you know, convincing a government that this is their role to play? It is an act of war that has blown up much of Halifax and Dartmouth. Um, so in a way, the feds are responsible. They're managing the war effort. The other thing is that the Canadian state, the federal government, in the course of the war, dramatically expands the scope of its activities. Uh, little government turns into big government in the name of winning the war, total war, mobilization of all resources. Um, and the two things that stand out in terms of a precedent, the introduction of income tax, which was <laughs> supposedly only for a wartime period, but in practice it's with us to this day. Uh, one expression of big government. And then the other and highly controversial one is conscription. It's never been done before. So with those precedents, Ottawa could be persuaded to intervene. Um, it would not be so much out of line with what they were already doing. So they set up what becomes a three-person commission, two from the city of Halifax, people who've been active in the Citizens Relief Committee, and one person from Ontario. The locals do want some representation from outside Halifax, outside the region, to make the point that this is a national crisis that has to be responded to by the national government. So we have that commission put in place, um, takes over from the Citizens Volunteer Group at the end of January. Fascinating. So this really was a, a policy precedent as well. Nobody had even thought about the legislative instruments that you would need to uh, organize a response, let alone how you're actually going to administer uh, disaster financial aid and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And it might be partially because in the past, humanitarian and church groups and volunteer agencies had really taken the lead on any sort of small disaster response. In fact, in the States, the American Red Cross uh, played a huge role in disaster management. But as I found out, and this is kind of a Canadian legacy piece, uh, as I found out, that was not the case for the Canadian Red Cross. Hi, I'm uh, Dan Patel. I'm the communications director in the Atlantic provinces uh, for the Canadian Red Cross. So uh, uh, located in Halifax, which is very much focused uh, lately on uh, this 100th anniversary of the Halifax explosion, which did play a huge role in the uh, development of the Red Cross. Uh, just to really set the scene, prior to December 6, 1917, the Red Cross function here in Nova Scotia, but also across the country, was really very much war-focused. I mean, our mandate was around supporting uh, war efforts, such as raising money for medical equipment and supplies uh, on the battlefield, and for hospitals to treat the wounded, most of them located in Europe, but some here in Canada, and providing care packages for troops and for prisoners of war, that kind of thing. Uh, that changed that morning in Halifax, and a domestic disaster response uh, role evolved. 
and that has continued to be our, our role ever since. Disaster response, disaster management remains to this day our flagship program. Uh, the Canadian Red Cross role in all of this was immediately in the hours after the explosion. Um, there was a, a relief committee struck by the mayor and council and, and others. And, and within all of that structure, there was a need for what was known as a medical supply committee. And this was the role taken on, or one of the roles taken on by the Canadian Red Cross. And that was a, a committee of 34 volunteers assisted by some military drivers who twice every day in the weeks following the explosion uh, went around to 62 locations where there was either a pre-existing hospital or a temporary hospital that had been set up, determine what medications and surgical and other supplies they needed, and resupplied them around the clock for weeks on end. In the meantime, in St. John, New Brunswick, the Red Cross nationally through Toronto and its uh, mains for wartime warehouse had sent a shipment of several carloads of medical supplies to be put on a ship in St. John, New Brunswick and sent overseas. Uh, they were diverted, or literally at the last moment, and instead told to redirect that train to Halifax. So it was the first uh, relief uh, mission that arrived from outside of Nova Scotia, and then, and then the ones in the American Red Cross uh, came along after that. And part of what's interesting to me is that some of the procedures that the American Red Cross introduced to us back in 1917 at the Halifax explosion are still essentially used today. Things like uh, having standard forms to assess the needs of a uh, disaster victim. And so I, I think events going back through our history, you know, they are carrying on a very proud tradition that's uh, existed in this country now for a hundred years, uh, all starting off with a, a very tragic event in in the narrows of Halifax Harbor in 1917. So in many ways, the Halifax explosion kind of ushered in this era of organized disaster management, uh, from setting a precedent for government responsibility in organizing response and supporting recovering, uh, to this Canadian first and really formative moment for the Canadian Red Cross. Another Canadian first, and indeed a first for North America, if not the world, uh, came from a man named Dr. Samuel Henry Prince. A lot of our information on him for this episode, anyways, comes from uh, Joseph Scanlon's aptly named article, Disaster's Little-Known Pioneer, Canada's Samuel Henry Prince. Yeah, I love this story. I mean, Prince is about as close as you can get to being a celebrity in disaster research. And you know you've made it when multiple countries are claiming you as their own. That's right. The U.S. likes to try and lay claim to him. But I'm here to tell you that he's a Canadian. Uh, in fact, he had a pretty interesting upbringing. Uh, he was born in New Brunswick, where he was reportedly quite the athlete, studied psychology at the University of Toronto, divinity at Wycliffe College, and then became a priest in Halifax. Uh, later on, he got his Ph.D. in sociology at Columbia University, uh, where he became the director of the Maritime School of Social Work and continued studies on mental health and astronomy. So he's a pretty smart fellow. But on December 6, 1917, he was in St. Paul's Church in Halifax. And although every window in the church was destroyed during the explosion, uh, it remained standing and he somehow avoided injury. Uh, immediately, he began to care for the dead and dying, which he had actually had experience in from participating in body recovery after the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, but Prince's true contribution to the field of disaster management was the world's first systematic study of disaster, which just so happened to be on the Halifax explosion. <laughs> so in 1920, 
Prince published his work, uh, Catastrophe and Social Change. And Josh, if you read through it today, you'd probably be horrified by the number of disaster myths that he seems to reinforce, such as, as the idea of mass panic, uh, rule abandonment, and this man as a savage theory, um, which, which talks about society as really being the only thing standing between us and the animals. Um, he talks about mass hallucination and people being convinced that it was a German attack. Uh, and he makes some pretty outrageous claims about disaster causing diabetes. Um, but you have to remember that he had nothing to go on. Uh, he was the first. His literature review must have been pretty lean. He was relying on theories of social behavior that were on the verge of being obsolete even in his time. So what was really interesting for me, anyways, was his writing on his personal first-hand observations, which, funnily enough, seemed to directly contradict many of the disaster myth theories that he was using and that he wrote about. He wrote about convergence of aid, of victims instantly becoming rescuers, of altruism, of spontaneous volunteers, and also some of the less admirable features of response, such as scapegoating, and uh, conflicts which arise during recovery. Yeah, uh, for example, uh, the uh, one of the lesser known aspects of the response was the um, summary arrest of uh, all German-speaking uh, Haligonians. And you can understand in a time of war, uh, uh, in the initial hours after the explosion, they didn't know if this was an attack or an accident or what the cause was. Um, but certainly one of the less told uh, aspects of the response. Yeah, not everything was uh, perfect, that's for sure. But what really struck me as I read through his work was the extent to which the problems and situations he describes are identical to the problems that we face today. For example, he talks about issues with too many volunteers. Uh, and here I'll read a quote directly from his work. There were also other problems, some of which it may be useful to note. One of these was the problem of the wisest use of local leaders who knew and could interpret the local point of view and method of doing things. Another, that of the absorption of volunteers, many of whom could not be expected to understand the nature of scientific relief service. And this, to me, speaks exactly of the management of spontaneous volunteers and integrating local resources, which are absolutely problems that we still deal with today. Yeah, it's pretty neat to, to hear those ideas uh, written so long ago. Yeah, and, and this was 100 years ago, and even at the time, he was uh, you know a pioneer in his field. It wasn't until 30 years later that the next systematic study came out. So he really, it really is a Canadian legacy. Yeah, an untold part of the uh, Halifax explosion experience, for sure. Was there anyone else that stood out for you, Josh? You have a medical background. Yeah, I mean, from the medical side, there's a, another... Um, character in the response that uh, has had quite a lot written about him, Dr. William Ladd, uh, who's credited, uh, at least in surgical circles, as being the father of pediatric surgery. He responded up in one of the relief trains from Boston and uh, was involved in a lot of pediatric care. Um, I guess his experience was so traumatic and, and oftentimes you know, not necessarily having the proper pediatric resources uh, at his disposal, he dedicated the rest of his career to improving uh, pediatric surgery. So um, there's been a little bit of contention in the literature about uh, how directly tied uh, his experience was uh, to the explosion, but we know he did respond there, and, and he wrote a lot personally about his experiences. So Dr. William Ladd, uh, the father of pediatric surgery. 
And there's also been quite a bit written in terms of ophthalmology with new procedures that uh, were introduced to treat the victims of uh, all the glass injuries, many of which uh, lost their vision. Um, there's kind of some staggering uh, statistics in, in some of the archive files talking about how many eyes had to be resected. Yeah, and this is a really interesting point because usually recovery efforts deal with the basics of, of, of need. So we're talking about housing and, and supplying foods. But in this case, there was such a specific slant to the hazard with, with the eye injuries and the glass injuries that a lot of the recovery efforts had to be dedicated to helping the blind and creating schools for the blind and pensions for people who are affected uh, in that very specific way, which I thought was interesting. And one of the other things that's amazing about this disaster is the level of detailed records that are available. This was not an accident. The historical significance of the explosion was recognized almost immediately in the initial days after the event, and it led to the appointment of an official curator of records, Archibald McMechan. Uh, he was a professor of English language and literature at Dalhousie, and he went on to become the director of the Halifax Disaster Records Office and served in that position for years after. What a treasure trove for disaster researchers. I mean, there's just volumes of primary documents which really give us insights into the response. So with this legacy of information and knowledge, what have we learned? What's the relevance to emergency management today? I think that's an important question. I mean, an event like this for a modern-day emergency manager has to be core knowledge. And when we talk about what the impact is 100 years later and, and we're celebrating anniversaries, I think we have to divide this into two categories. There's the more popular and perhaps even a bit romanticized version of how we collectively remember these uh, these events and re certainly remember the, the victims and the, the devastating impact it had on the city. But I think as a professional, we also have to go back with a bit more of a scientific look and consider how could these lessons learned impact our uh, modern day planning? Uh, what sort of uh, things happened then that would still have significance today? I mean, looking at the response, there's a lot. There's uh, rumor control, there's convergence of spontaneous volunteers, there's uh, failure of, of levels of government, and these are all, I think, valuable lessons. It's also important to remember the lesser told stories. I mean, um, there's a lot of uh, very admirable and heroic work that was done, but there also was some room for improvement. Uh, and a lot of the popular, um, you know, made for TV movie kind of history that you watch, it leaves out the important role that uh, women played in the response. It leaves out some of the uh, mistreatment of um, marginalized populations, uh, how First Nations were treated, how um, African Canadians uh, were treated. And I think th it's important in our memory not to gloss over those uh, those parts of the history. Uh, a disaster like this with, with such a epic response, um, we need to consider it warts and all. I agree. And, and perhaps for me, my biggest learning is to take a closer look at this disaster and disasters like it. And I'd like to close here with a quote from Prince's work, Catastrophe and Social Change. I think it's really telling and it sort of sums up the experience of Halifax in a, a really remarkable way. So I quote, it is improbable that any single community has ever presented so composite a picture of human traits in such bold relief as it appeared in the city of Halifax upon the day of the explosion. Human phenomena, which many knew of only as hidden away in books, stood out so clearly 
that he who ran might read. And now, as a way of remembering those who were impacted by the Halifax explosion, it is my, my very great privilege to be able to showcase a, a Canadian work by a Canadian poet, a Haligonian even. Uh, this is the Halifax Camerata Singers under the direction of Jeff Jodry with the Rhapsody Quintet performing Halifax, December 6th, 1917. Poem by D.M. Matheson with music by Christopher Palmer.
You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.